to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack, and today our guest is Brian Green, and he is the founding principal of Green Springs Capital Group, and he's been investing in real estate for the past eight years. And he initially began in real estate by acquiring small multifamily properties, redeveloping them with extensive renovations and property management initiatives, acquiring fixed long-term debt and self-management managing the newly stabilized properties as long-term holds. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, Eileen. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Brian, can you share a little bit more about your background and how you got started with real estate? Sure, absolutely. So my background actually started out of college. I ended up working in retail for quite some time. I ended up building out a chain of Verizon wireless stores in the Northeast. So I did that for about 12 years, built it up to around 23 stores, And then in 2014, I ended up exiting that company and selling them off to a larger national retailer on the West Coast. So about four months later, I started getting into real estate. At the time, I had money from the sale of my old company, and I kind of wasn't sure what I was going to do next. It was kind of an unexpected sale. I wasn't actively looking to sell the company. So I found myself, I guess, unemployed for a little bit in a good way. But then you know, I just started doing some more reading. I'm very much an avid reader. And real estate started to click with me. So then I think three months after the sale of my company, I bought my first small multifamily, started figuring out how to property manage myself, probably went a little bit too far in the way of trying to fix things myself and do like landscaping and all that kind of stuff at the property, but uh, quickly figured out the business side of it and then kind of uh, started growing from there. Why did you decide on a smaller multifamily versus going straight into like a single family home or some other things within real estate? I did a great deal of uh, reading, at least in that short time span. And it was quickly apparent to me that the math just made more sense, the more units you could get under one roof. And at that time, I was thinking that like, okay, well, then I'll go to four because four is the largest property you can get right with residential financing. And I really wanted you know, the, the 30-year amortization and I wanted the low down payment and all those things that you think of when you're getting into real estate. So that's kind of why I settled in on a small multifamily. I also thought it was a way that I could kind of buy it low risk, right? And just kind of figure it out as I went. And I feel like on a single family house, you kind of lose some of that maybe because you just have to pick one tenant. Your cash flow is only so much. So I wanted to feel like an apartment building and gain that experience. With the four units, you were able to purchase it as a... Was it as a... like an individ, Did you take out a personal loan for that one? Or how did you structure that as you were getting into that first multifamily? Yeah. So on that one, you know, again, like I said, I was just getting into real estate. I didn't know what I didn't know. So actually, I paid cash for that building. The entire, um, entire building? Yeah. Paid cash for the whole thing. And then it was a property that had already been renovated by another investor. So it was almost a, like a turnkey. And really what it lacked was professional management. So I knew that the rents were too low. I knew that like certain utilities weren't being billed back to the tenants and it needed some still uh, finishing touches on the renovation side. So I thought it was like a light value add for lack of a better term. So quickly after I bought it, I made those improvements and then we ended up actually doing cash out refinance on it at 70% of LTV, something like that. 
30-year loan because it was a four-unit building. But in retrospect, I, I probably would not have paid cash for it up front. <laughs> so after that four-unit deal, yeah. Yeah. what did you do after that? So I think in the same calendar year, I ended up buying another four-unit building. And then I quickly bought another three-unit building. And I, I kept stacking small multifamily properties on top of each other to build out a, a portfolio of, call it 20 to 24 units across six properties. I was basically using... On the first two, like I said, I was kind of figuring it out. And then by the third one, I realized I wanted to start really doing heavy value add, like major renovations to the building, because I wanted to actually burr the apartment buildings back to myself. So I'm sure you're aware, and a lot of your listeners are aware of Burr Invest, where you're buying it, uh, you're fixing it up, and then you're going to you're going to rent it out, you're going to refinance, you're going to use the money and move on to the next project. I wanted to do that same thing that people do on single family homes, but on small multis. So I started doing that thereafter so that I could keep reusing the same capital. And uh, so then over the course of, say, two, two and a half years, I built it up to those 24 units. Okay. And then at that time, were you still doing everything on your own or you're self-managing? I was, yeah. Full disclosure, I still self-manage. But now I have a bigger team. But the, uh, at that point, yes. So the only, the only uh, role that I hired out was I hired uh, a handyman maintenance person that was just a 99 contractor, but so somebody else that could do the actual contracting work. And then I hired an assistant who would help me with showings because the more and more I read, you know, about business development and building out your team, the first thing they tell you is like find the one or two things that you really dislike, like the parts of the business that there's always a part of every business that somebody doesn't like to do. And for me, it was showing the apartments. So I I found an assistant that could do that uh, for me. Um, and she was really the first non like hammer swinging contractor that we brought on to our team. So for that 24 units, you had purchased it all on your own, no mm-hmm. partners or anything like that. After those 24 units, did you continue to go bigger or did you transition and did you start bringing in partners at one point? Yes. So uh, right at that exact point, my brother was also leaving his former career uh, and he became on as a partner with me. So from that point on, we started looking at, still looking at small multifamilies, but um, even medium-sized buildings too. So the first first one he and I bought was a nine unit, and then we quickly bought another 20 unit. And then we started scaling it from there. And his role was to take over project management. And so he was overseeing all the contractors on the construction crews and also all the maintenance and what have you on the apartments. And my role was acquisitions, finance, and kind of overseeing leasing and operations. So from there, from the time he joined um, to call it three years later, we quadrupled the amount of units we had. So we went from 24 to over 100. And we built out the team progressively over time. It was the kind of the first... past what I accomplished on my own at first. That was like the big point where we started scaling. And that was from scaling from the 24 to the 100 was utilizing continuously that Burr method that you were talking about earlier? For the most part, yeah. We were doing some outside money structuring it with friends and family um, using private notes. So what we would do is we had a great relationship with our local lender and they would loan 80% of the cost of the purchase and the renovation. So we only had to have 20% equity. And then of that 20%, we would borrow 10% with private notes for friends and family. So knowing that when we finished the renovations, we were going to refinance the loan and we were going to pay off the notes and we'd own the building at 100%. So that to this day is still what we've done to build out our portfolio. We're almost using those private notes as like a mezzanine debt built into the structure. 
One of the things I have to ask also, because you work partner is your brother. And one of the things that yeah. people hear often is, you know, it's uh-huh. hard to work with family. Sometimes you don't want to get into that. What has made it for you guys to make that partnership really work and solidified where everybody understands their roles and responsibilities and the communication is continuing to be strong? Yeah. So it's been great working with my brother. So I always term it like it's kind of like when you're in a partner in business, especially when it's family, that's it's kind of like a second marriage. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) At some point, you're going to get angry with each other or get upset or people are going to start annoying you, but your family. So you just have to kind of figure it out. So we always, we have our moments where we get into disagreements or or don't don't speak to each other very kindly, but we always circle back, right? Because your family and your brother's and we kind of figure it out. I think that in the last year or so, um, we've kind of started pushing past some of those things, like you mentioned before about who's doing what roles and um, you know how do you get through you know maybe challenges with working with family. We started implementing EOS into our company. We brought in an outside implementer to help us uh, with quarterly meetings and annual meetings. And uh, the thought process is we we need to start really running this like a like a real company instead of just like you and I figuring this out as we go. Um, so I think that structure that EOS has provided and having an outside mediator, but like outside uh, influencer, right? And and, uh, and helping us structure the company the right way, I think has also been helpful because since that point, our roles are very much more defined and we continue to define them as we move forward and kind of figure out what we're good at, what we're not good at as individuals, and then where we want to be in the future. So when you're purchasing your these smaller multi-unit properties and you're refinancing and structuring the the debt on it, what kind of debt do you typically have to put on? And, and as you were starting to grow the business, did you have to go into a, more of a commercial loans or you know, at what point did you decide to restructure things or how did you look at it as you started to grow out the business from the 24 to 100 units? Yeah. So even within that 24, some of the loans we were doing were, because I think I had a six unit, but maybe another one that was a five. So we had to get into commercial lending fairly early. So I quickly realized that yes, uh, residential lending is great because it's a lower down payment generally and a longer amortization. Sometimes it's a better rate, but commercial lending actually gives you way more flexibility, I found, because the lenders are not so beholden to these structures that they have to fulfill for like FHA loans and all, and uh, you know all the government backed uh, loans that you see, so they're lending out of their own bank balance sheets, right? So each bank has its own rules, and you can kind of have one competed against the other. And there's way more flexibility, I feel like, in that world. So we started switching over to commercial loans, even the small multifamilies we have within the first two, three, four years. A lot of that also was driven by the fact that sometimes valuing them like commercial properties based on their net operating income was providing us better valuations than using comps like you would on a residential property. And when we went to commercial lenders, they would always value it on net operating income. So depending on which way we thought the building was going to value higher, we could go with either the residential lender or the commercial lender. And now we just do everything commercial because it's easier and gives us more flexibility. And then do you just put them all under, you know, like one LLC umbrella as you just continue to expand it? Or do you do some type of like series LLC as you're building out the portfolio? Yeah, it's been a learning progress there too. So originally they were all under the same LLC. And then when my brother came on, all the new ones went under another LLC, which was not the ideal structure if you ask any attorney. So now we actually in the recent, in the, in the last year, we've converted to so all of our properties are now in individual LLCs. And my brother and I founded is more just like a holding company and the property management company. 
So there's some separation between the property and our actual activities. So then after the 100 units that you guys had built out the portfolio, did you continue to buy multifamily? And at what point did you decide to run the property management company as well? So the property management company got just came about kind of organically. We had a need and we wanted to manage them ourselves. We kind of, whether it's right or wrong, we've always gone with the mentality that nobody's going to manage it with the same desire and the same motivation that, some, that we are because it's our investment, right? So every time we've gotten bigger, we've always added people to our team and then just organically, we turned it into a property management company. So the other part of your question was, where are we kind of, where are we now? So now we're looking at bigger buildings and still continuing to deploy that redevelopment strategy, basically what I call burring apartment buildings back to ourselves. But we've also gone into ground up development. So right now we're working on a 42 unit property or project in Saratoga Springs, which is the main town that we invest in in upstate New York. So we're working through those municipal approvals with the city. It's going to be kind of a two-pronged approach as we move forward, continuing to buy existing property to redevelop, as well as starting a new ground-up project every year. What was the reasoning behind or what went into the decision to move from buying existing properties to going into a ground-up development project? Some of it, to be honest with you, was just my own frustration as being the one that's in charge of acquisitions on finding suitable opportunities that actually made sense when I ran the numbers. So, you know, in the last couple of years, as most of you and most of your listeners know, that the prices on multifamily properties have kind of skyrocketed. And it's at some point, it was very hard for me to make sense of the math. So, you know, I kept looking at opportunities and looking at opportunities. And when you go on such a dry spell of like six months where you haven't been able to buy anything, you start looking outside the box. So I just happened to have a conversation with a gentleman that we knew and that was in lending who'd gone off and started his own kind of firm to do uh, consulting work for both financing on commercial properties as well as construction and uh, development. 30 days later, I'm looking through the MLS and there's this listing that keeps popping up, popping up every time I'm going through the old listings. And it was a ground up development opportunity. So I started running numbers on it and consulting with him and it made sense on paper. Finally, I found something that made sense after so long. We just have kind of figured it out as we've gone along and now we're almost a year into the approval process. Looks like it's going to be a great deal for us. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. So when you get the opportunity, was it just a raw piece of land or was it an actual opportunity with a business plan that was already kind of somewhat put into place that was being offered as you were looking to get into that ground up development project? So ironically, the property kept coming up on my listing search because it had an existing building on there with apartments. So there's eight apartments on the property now, still is, until we actually put forth our development plan. So it's eight apartments, but it's in like an old house that's chopped up into multiple units. And it's kind of being used as like college housing right now. We have a university that's uh, real close by. 
So, you know, we were looking at it and it's going to turn kind of into, we started looking at it like, all right, that's not the highest and best use of the property to use it the way it is. It's two and a half acres. So it's quite large. It's walking distance into town. And by zoning law, it's allowed to have 36 units on it. So all those things obviously were very interesting to us. So then we started doing the math and figuring how we could build it out as a a ground up development project. And ultimately what we determined was that we could keep the old, old structure and relocate it on the property and then convert those old apartments into condos to sell them off and make a slight profit on it. But also at the same time, we can build our new 36 unit apartments on the same parcel if we just split it into a subdivision. Kind of a, a lot of moving parts, and we didn't start with that plan going into it. <laughs> but uh, we got some feedback from the city about the old buildings that are on the lot and from the preservation society that's pretty active in our town. We thought that the best way to appease and make everyone happy, especially this being our first major ground up development, was to save the old buildings, renovate them in whatever way we could successfully, and then also get our apartments on the same lot. So so now we're doing condo conversions of a historic building as well as ground up development on our first swing at it. <laughs> this is your first development project that you're working on. Well, ground up. I the mean, ground up, first ground up. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we've done redevelopment projects that have been multi-million dollars, but there's always been a structure there of some kind. So this one does have a structure that we're going to redevelop, but there's also going to be new ones behind it. So in that way, it's the first of its kind. What is the first thing that you look for, you know, an opportunity that makes it where a light bulb clicks off and you're like, oh, this is a great opportunity. We could potentially build up another 30 something units on top of whatever is existing here. What helped you look at the deal and then recognize the potential that it could possibly bring? So in the listing, the listing broker had mentioned what the zoning allows. So by law, it allows 36 units, which it's not often you just find something that's already zoned for something like that. Usually you have to get some sort of variance or zoning exception. So I knew that automatically like, all right, maybe the rural process is not going to be that daunting because it's allowed to have this. So then once you know that how many units are available on the lot, it's really just math. So I hired a consultant that could help us with a construction budget. And we just kind of backed into what that would cost to build it. And then I can figure out how much we're going to rent them for. That's my world. And I can figure out what it's going to be worth based on the net operating income. And then you're just looking at kind of the spread. So on this particular deal, it's going to end up costing us about $10 million to build the apartment part of it. And as soon as it's done and it's all leased out, it'll be worth 14. So with those numbers, you can obviously see that it makes a lot of sense. And we can almost burr a brand new apartment complex back to ourselves, right? Because we'll be able to get a loan for basically everything we have to put into it. With the ground up development projects as well, what kind of contingencies do you put on there to just in case some things are happening? You mean on the purchase contract? Yes. Just in in terms of when you're putting the budgets together, what kind of reserves or contingencies do you typically like to see on your projects? Yeah. So number one, our contract with the seller was exclusively dependent on us getting approvals and permits with the city. So we checked that risk profile because there's always municipalities that can, whether you're allowed to do it or not, Sometimes the product doesn't get approved. So we wanted to make sure we were protected there. And then when we got to the construction budget, you know, it was basically a matter of the same thing you would do on an existing building, just be conservative at every single part of the underwriting. So in our world, we think it's maybe really going to cost us $9 million to build it, but our budget is 10.5. So we add 10 or 15% to that. We go out and we get quotes from different vendors. And if a general contractor tells us he's going to charge 
4% of the total project and he's going to do it for $175 a square foot. Well, then we model in 5% and $200 a square foot, <laughs> right? Because uh, I don't think anybody's ever seen a construction budget that comes in on budget. At every step along the way, we kind of build that in there. And then even on the, the stabilized side for the apartments, we're putting in pro forma rents that are basically below average today. And we're projecting those out three years from now. Instead of saying, okay, we're going to get market rate three years from now, and that's the only way the project makes sense. Conservative rents, we have conservative financing assumptions, we have inflated renovation budgets, all those things kind of protect you along the way. Got it. And so working on a project like this, what would be for you one of the biggest challenges that you had to overcome? You mentioned the zoning was already set in place. So that was a big challenge that you didn't have to worry about going into the deal. But moving forward, what is the big challenge that you potentially would have to overcome? So internally, the biggest challenge for us was this is the first time we decided to take on uh, real outside money. The numbers I've just explained to you on how much it's going to cost my brother and I have done very well in business, but we didn't have that type of liquidity to cover it ourselves. So this time, it's we're actually we had to syndicate the deal. So that means we're bringing on passive investors and partners in the deal. So that was a little bit intimidating. Although the raising has gone very well for us, so we've kind of almost gotten past that part. And on the other side of it, with the approval process, the biggest challenge was the question of whether or not the existing buildings are historic or not. Like I said before, I think in the beginning there, we have a very active group in our city that's Preservation Society. And the city is very much inclined to save old architecture, old buildings. We're in the Northeast. We have a lot of old buildings. So this specific property was never designated as textually significant or historic. So that was the other reason I thought this was attractive, right? Because it doesn't have any of these pre-existing challenges. But then when we got into the deal and we started working with the city, we found out that even though it's not designated, it could be. And some people are still considering it to be that way. So you kind of have to work through that challenge. And we're still doing that now. For example, like next week, we have to meet with the mayor. We got to talk about like, you know, what the project is going to look like. I think we have a lot of backing in the city because they love the fact that we're going to keep the old buildings, even though we don't necessarily have to. But that historic element has been a little bit of a challenge. You mentioned that this is the first time you're going to be bringing outside capital into one of your deals. Where is the best place then have you found to find new investors or are you tapping into your current existing network? It's our own existing network for the most part. We kind of set forth and I kind of saw the writing on the wall maybe 18 months ago that this was eventually going to be our path. My brother and I have very big growth objectives. We want to get to $150 million in real estate in the next 10 years. That equates in my market to about a thousand apartments. Very difficult to see a path to get there just using your own capital. So we knew that this eventually was going to be part of our business model. I think the beginning of last year, almost 18 months ago, yeah, at this point, I started putting together lists and I started, we put together a packet for all our friends and family. We just started building that out organically over time. So now we have a um, decent amount of internal investors. And then we just figure organic, it'll grow over time. But our business model with our investors is going to be very similar to what we did ourselves. So we're trying to return all of their capital within a short time frame, two, three, four years. So the hope is we won't need a tremendous amount of investors because if we keep giving them their money back and they're still in the deal, right, long term, that they'll just keep reinvesting with us and it'll kind of be like a snowball effect for everyone. So 18 months ago, when you determined that you're going to have a need to bring in outside investors into your deals. What type of education or what type of communication were you starting to send out to your network to kind of let them know 
this is what you have going on and start educating them a little bit about the potential for future deals coming up? We put together a, um, a presentation, for lack of a better term, a credibility packet, if you want to call it that. Just uh, giving the the backgrounds of my brother and I, even though most of the people are sending it to our friends and family, right? They know our background, but we put it together in a professional way. We gave lots of different examples of our existing portfolio and what our business strategy was, our target market, demographic reports, all those type of things just to kind of uh, let people know what we're doing and our current success that we're having internally. Also notated in there that in the future, we're going to have some investment opportunities if anyone's interested. I kind of sent that out to everyone I thought might be interested. And then based on responses, then you start just having one-on-one phone calls, like as you do, explaining what our thoughts are and what we're going to be working on. And then anybody that says, yeah, I'm interested and gets added to the list, then if you don't hear from an aunt or an uncle, then uh, I guess they're not interested in real estate. <laughs> Brian, what is next for you? Next for us is um, hopefully getting this existing project through the finish line so that we can start construction at the end of the year. Like I said, we have some pretty big growth objectives. So we want to get a second ground-up development project under contract this year. And we also want to add an additional, call it 50 to 75 existing apartments this year that we can redevelop. So we want to continue on that two-pronged approach into the future, continue to build out our team, and hopefully we can achieve our goals here in the next next decade. What are some of the things that you're implementing in, in your company right now to help you achieve those goals that you set out to do? Yep. So a couple of different things. So a lot of it is adding the right team members. So in the last year, we added a project management side. We added a project coordinator, somebody that's going to oversee all the construction sites and really systematize everything from the point where now we have spreadsheets where we can really get into the the details of how much a renovation is going to cost based on the current condition of the property, all the way through implementing Gantt chart programs and everything. So we have a clear timeline on when the projects are going to be complete. So really modernizing and systematizing our construction. And then on the acquisition side, I'm also a licensed broker. So we just recently brought on our first agent. In the past, I've always had my license, but we've only used it for our own acquisitions. So now we're going to use it for our own acquisitions, but we're also bringing on an agent who's going to work as our acquisitions agent and kind of expand our scope of uh, what we can find to acquire as well. So really, it's just it's putting people in the right places and building out with high quality team members. And we like to do it before we need them, I guess, is the way to do it. We always hire before the need is there. And we kind of that kind of forces you in some way to make the investment so that you, now you have to go out and do the work to kind of gain the revenue to pay for your investment. I like to force myself into those corners. So Brian, how has real estate investing impacted your life? I mean, I think in a, a tremendous way. I feel like in my old career in retail with the stores, I reached a certain point where they talk about the uh, 10,000 hour rule or whatever that Malcolm Gladwell and a lot of other people talk about. And I feel like when I got to like year eight in that world, I kind of hit my 10,000 hours and everything started clicking. Right. So now in real estate, I feel like I've in the last two years kind of hit that same spot. And we're really, really on the precipice of like a massive scaling. And I can see now the future, what it's going to be, what it's going to look like. And really, it's going to translate into even a higher level of freedom for my family, our friends, our investors, and kind of just almost push you to the point of that generational wealth goal that a lot of people seek. And I feel like real estate is one of the only vehicles that can kind of help you attain that. And what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? I think it's focus on networking a lot more than I used to. 
I think at first I'm the kind of guy that would likes to figure everything out myself, would rather make the spreadsheet make sense than to go out to a real estate meetup and shake hands and meet people. But I'm finding now that it's far more important to do the networking aspect of it in real estate than it is knowing every single corner and, and uh, nook and cranny of your spreadsheet. That's just a metaphor for like, you have to get out and meet people. You have to network. That's the only way you're going to see deals. That's the only way you're going to partner with people. You really need to get out. Whether that's natural for you or not, it's essential in this business. And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? I would say it's... I think that though in real estate, building off of the last answer I provided about networking and going out and meeting people... I think in real estate, your reputation and your brand, for lack of a better word, your integrity is paramount. Like not a world where you can go out and be selfish or cut corners or um, not fulfill obligations that you commit to. People have to trust you or else deals won't get done. So I think that the people that operate with the most integrity and always try to do the right thing, even when it means maybe being a little bit less than you thought you could... I think those people have the, the greatest amount of success in this business. And those that don't kind of find themselves by, by themselves <laughs> uh, on an island, at some point, their careers stall out, understands that they don't want to work with those people. And Brian, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? Sure, sure. sure. They can uh, follow us on Instagram. You can find us at, at Green Springs Capital. Also on our website, greenspringscapitalgroup.com. You'll find all of our listings, investor portal, our newsletters, all kinds of uh, good information on Green Springs. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much for all of your time today. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.